Welcome to the Rockbrook Church Podcast. Our hope is that today's message brings you hope and clarity for your spiritual journey. We love hearing how God is working in your life. Feel free to share any stories of how this message gave you a new perspective and hope. Email us at church at rockbrook.org to tell your story. Good morning, everybody. Happy Independence Day this coming Tuesday. I'm so grateful. Aren't you grateful that we get to gather together and worship freely this morning? We didn't have to, uh, you know, hide somewhere or whisper a little praise to each other uh, this morning for fear of being uh, expelled from our country or punished or jailed or sent out. And we got to boldly come together and sing together today and proclaim God's word. And just so grateful for that opportunity that we have and that you took advantage of it this morning, didn't take it for granted. Uh, we began this series, God's Good Plan for the Future, uh, by looking at how the resurrection changed everything and made a future with God even possible to begin with. And then we looked at the ascension of Jesus and what he is doing now and that just how he ascended and was veiled by a cloud and that's how he'll return. He'll uh, reappear to us and return to us. And then uh, the last two weeks, Pastor Kelly's messages on Jesus' glorious return uh, were just absolutely incredible, just the way he outlined that and brought just some clarity and truth to those things. And the seven things that we are to be doing now uh, as we wait for Jesus' return were so powerful, all of it, so grateful for it. If you ever miss a message and want to hear a specific sermon, we've tried to make that as easy as possible. Rockbrook.org slash sermons. You could hear individual sermons or on the Rockbrook app. You can click on media, listen to them there. Anywhere you listen to any other podcast, you can find Rockbrook Church on there as well. Or you can go to rockbrook.org slash services. You could watch the whole service or watch the message there if you ever want to catch up on something. But I want to take us to a place this weekend in the timeline we've been following and see, well, how will things ultimately end up? And what will they be like? And so I want to answer this weekend, what will heaven and hell be like? And it's interesting. The Bible, you know, begins with a beginning. Somebody say, duh, like it begins in the beginning. Uh, but the Bible, interestingly enough, doesn't end as you would expect. The Bible does not end with an ending. It ends with a new beginning. It ends with a new heaven and earth. And where those who believed will have every tear wiped from their eyes and God makes everything new and dwells with his people. And what we see is that God has a good plan of how to deal with evil and put the world back in order and back together as it should be. But what we choose to focus on and how we spend our life and what we choose to believe affects how we fit into that plan. And the reason that our ultimate future with God is so great in Christ is because the righteousness of God is going to purify every element of wickedness from our future and ensure that heaven is a perfect place filled with the righteousness of God. And this has to happen. It has to happen. If there's going to be goodness in the future, wickedness has to be cleansed from the earth because uh, we are eternal beings and Satan is an eternal being and given 
the real nature of sin, when it is stripped away from something that's fun and entertaining and when sin is no longer what the advertisement looked like or the billboard looked like or what your friend told you it would be like, and it really sinks its teeth into humanity, it turns ugly. And it's the ugliest form of ugly that you can imagine. Things that would make the human mind melt and wonder as to how could something that horrible be happening? How could someone be that depraved? But the reason that our depravity will not be a problem for us in heaven is because God is going to righteously cleanse the earth and rid the earth of corruption and the corrosion of sin and the occupation of Satan forever. And that's why hell exists. You see, a lot of people have this this mindset. They think that uh, Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of hell. And that he will be tormenting people there and he'll be in charge there. Uh, but that is, that is, that's just not the case. In fact, hell is empty right now. Uh, just as believers die and then separated from their bodies, they go to the present heaven and wait, await for the resurrection and the new heaven and the new earth. Unbelievers die and go to a place, the New Testament, called Hades, where they await resurrection and final judgment. And it's not until after the resurrection and judgment that anyone's cast into hell. So hell exists for God to righteously deal with Satan. He will send Satan to hell. And he'll send his demons there and he'll send unbelievers there. So that all who are standing in the new heaven and new earth will praise God for the cleansing power and the holy, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the cleansed wickedness from the earth. You see, in most cases where Jesus is talking about hell, which he talks about often, uh, he was using a word referring to Gehenna. And Gehenna is a real place that was outside the city of Jerusalem. In uh, history, in the Old Testament days, there were uh, false gods who would have sacrifices made to them there, most notably the god of Molech, who children were sacrificed in this place called Gehenna. And because of that, God cursed the ground and that place was cursed by God. And then moving forward into the timeline of Jesus, this valley outside the city of Jerusalem was a place where trash was perpetually burning. So all the trash of the city would be put in this place and maybe some agent like sulfur would be used uh, to keep the fire burning. So when Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, is teaching about heaven and hell, which he did very, very often, he would reference this valley, so maybe even point in the direction of this valley and say that place down there that's burning day and night, and there's this stench that rises up from it in this cloud, and there's trash and sewage. Jesus said, that's the word, and that's the place, and that's what I'm going to reference for an eternity without the grace of God covering your life. And I just want to say this as unequivocally as I can today, that Jesus believed in a literal heaven and a literal hell. And he believed that our eternal destiny matters and can be affected. And so I just want to write down, have us write down a few things that Jesus taught us 
uh, specifically about hell this morning, then we'll turn to heaven. But Jesus taught us, number one, that hell is worse than the worst physical persecution you could face. And there are many accounts in the New Testament of what happened to believers who were trying to follow God in the midst of great opposition to Jesus. And that's been, uh, you know, the, the history of followers of God and followers of Christ is people are persecuted because of their faith. And Jesus taught that as bad as that is, that doesn't even compare to what eternity without the grace of God would be like. And in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And some of the people he's talking to are, would face horrible persecution. They were being sawed in half, quartered by horses, boiled alive, burned alive. And he says, don't be afraid of the people who do those things to you because something matters more. And then he immediately comes around his care for us and he says, what is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Then he comes around his point once again. Everyone who acknowledges me publicly on, here on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Hell is worse than the worst physical persecution you could face. Number two, if you're taking notes, hell is a place of regret and sorrow. So hell is not an eternal opportunity to enjoy all the sinful pleasures that you've known on earth. It's not an eternal party. Uh, hell is what's left at the end of the road of sin. The part that corrupts and corrodes. And that's the part that we're left with in hell. And I couldn't fit all these passages of Jesus' teaching in your outline, so you can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. But in this passage, Jesus is talking about uh, good seed and bad seed being sown out into the field and being sown among his flock. And he gives this parable of a farmer and a field and a harvest. And, uh, and then they ask him what it means and he comes back around and he tells you the cast of here's this and here's who it is. And uh, he says, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is sadness and gnashing of teeth. That's not pain. Gnashing of teeth is regret. It's, why did I, why did I squander my opportunity? Why did I reject God? Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. 
Hell is a place of regret and sorrow. Number three, Jesus believed and teaches us that hell is eternal punishment. So hell is not a short reckoning and then nothing. Uh, It's not like hell is falling short of heaven and then disappearing into nothingness. According to Jesus, hell is eternal punishment. He taught that when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Number three, hell is eternal punishment. Number four, Hell is perpetual fire. And people will ask, well, is hell literally fire or is it figurative? But just reading the text of what Jesus believed and taught, I would not discount the fact that there is fire there. And obviously it's not a consuming fire where people are being annihilated, but the imagery and the word pictures Jesus uses tells us that there's perpetual fire. And he says that if you cause one of these little ones, talking about children who trust in him, if you cause one of these little ones to trust in me, trust in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Aren't you glad we have a better hope than that? Right? That we have God's spirit living in us, but he's giving us a picture And says, if you have something in your life and its power is ruling over you, you've got to do the most forceful thing you can do to get rid of that in your life. You've got to get extreme. And sometimes we wonder why we don't have victory and walk in the spirit and the fullness of God. 
and it's because we have stuff in the world that we're just accommodating. And Jesus says, you've got to move that stuff out. He says, it's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. I think this is where someone might say, man, could we bring Ryland back as the preacher? When Jesus preaches the points, it's a little too much, right? Hell is perpetual fire. Number five, hell is a place of conscious awareness that something better is unattainable. So Jesus tells a story of a beggar named Lazarus uh, begging for crumbs and scraps at the gate of this rich man. But the rich man never gave him anything. And finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father, Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, Remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are here in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here. and No one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So even in Hades, the person was aware of another place and aware that there is a God with whom they could have a relationship, aware of a different outcome, yet unable to attain it. And so he wants others to attain it. And so many times we reject the thought of hell and we question God because we cannot bear the thought of a loved one who's died before us uh, to be destined for suffering. All the while, they're crying out for you to believe. And if they are to be consoled in any way, it will be from the fact that you have turned to God. See, everyone, regardless of what they believed on earth, now are hoping that you will love God, that you will passionately serve God, that you will receive Jesus Christ into your life. No one in hell is going to be pleased that you join them there. And God is clear that he doesn't want anyone to perish. But we either agree with God or we don't. 
and we heard from Jesus today, and we either agree with Jesus or we don't, and you have that choice today. You can leave here today, or you can turn off this recording and say you don't agree with Jesus, and I just implore you from one human being to another to believe Jesus and to choose life in Christ. And we didn't touch all the references from Jesus about hell, but we have heard from Jesus today, not some preacher, not some theologian. And would you agree that Jesus was not inconclusive on the subject of hell? And I know the human mind wants to default to a position or a point of view uh, that just says that, well, at the end of the day, we all somehow make it. But God is clear that when, when your life ends, the deal is done. It's like everything else in life. It's finished. The box score is logged. And we like to entertain the idea that it's going to somehow work out at the end of the day. But to that point of view, there is a cross standing in history. A cross that teaches us that Jesus believed that there is something from which to be saved. And that without the cleansing holy wrath of God, there is not even a heaven to look forward to. And Jesus saw this tidal wave of God's holiness coming to cleanse the earth of its sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to make a way where there would be no way so that you could be spared. So that in Jesus we can be hidden in his righteousness. So that when the wrath of God comes, we are in the shelter of his wings. We are under the covering of the blood of Jesus. And we're under the covering of a Savior who gave his life in our place, who took our sin and absorbed the wrath of God in our place. And friend, hell is a lot of things, but absolutely, if you're taking notes, hell is avoidable. What Jesus and the cross teach us mostly about hell is that it's avoidable. I mean, the guy hanging next to Jesus escapes it with his last breath. while the other decides judgment. And when you put hell on the table, it's real and it's gruesome in every way. But everywhere you see hell, everywhere you see the payment of sin, you see God's grace trying to overwhelm the conversation. And you see God saying, I've made a way. His name is Jesus. The way is the cross. Receive him, accept him, believe on him, cling to him. And avoid death. And that is God's heart for us. We want to ask the question, how could a good God send someone to hell? The real question is, how could anyone reject the love and the grace of God? The free forgiveness from Christ. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I mean, you can hear him almost pleading with people, truly, truly, I tell you. So often when it comes to this topic, we want to know how God is going to work it out with everybody else. Uh, well, what about this scenario and what, what about... Uh, these people and what about this type of person and these types of people and what I would suggest is that we not worry about how God will righteously deal with anyone else 
but instead be concerned about how we are going to respond to God and how God will deal with us out of that response. And that what Christ did when he took the payment for your sin and the penalty transferred into your account, when he took the penalty into his account and transferred his faithfulness, his righteousness into your account, that there is a permanent once and for all covering for sin, the righteousness of Jesus Christ to save us. To save, yes, to save us from ourself. Yes, to save us from an insignificant life and a life that's less than the best. Yes, to save us from our sin. But ultimately, to save us from the cleansing holiness of God that's coming and to save us from the horrors of hell. And that's why the cross is so gruesome. As you see the full effects, the aftermath of sin and what it does in humanity, all laid out on an innocent life. And at the cross, we saw what God justly pouring out his wrath looks like. And at the same time, we saw his great love and compassion and forgiveness for people. Let's look at it in scripture. In Romans 5, it says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person. Though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. When that day comes of God's uh, unbridled holiness. Everything in its wake will get covered. And if Jesus did not believe that day was coming and all evil and sinfulness would be cast out from God's presence, why would he put his life in our place? His belief in this was so compelling that it compelled him to go all the way to the cross to die for it. But on the flip side of that, Christ has come and out of the tomb erupted life and out of the tomb erupted hope and all kinds of opportunity for us to come and receive and be saved and receive Christ's covering for our sin. So in the same moment that Christ's holiness comes to cleanse the earth, we will be covered by what Christ has issued for us when his blood was shed for us on the cross. Jesus did not believe in any other way, in any back door, so I said it is finished on the cross. He's teaching us that by the death, uh, his death on the cross, that he's convinced of everything he ever believed and everything he ever taught about heaven and hell and about God's good plan for the future. In Revelation 21 and 22, we get the clearest description of what he's done for us in the future. It's the new beginning that we talked about earlier, that the Bible ends with, this new beginning. John said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. This is that new beginning. There will be resurrection out of the old. So just as we talked about that our bodies will somehow, uh, our new bodies in heaven will be resurrected and glorified out of the old, that's what God will do with creation is you will have this new 
heaven and earth, heaven on earth, that's redeemed out of the old and all made new without sin. John goes on, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. Watch this with me, note this. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Heaven is a place of no more, of no more death, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more separation because death is gone. I mean, when you get tired of the mourning and the crying and the pain, and you know in your heart, you feel that pull in your heart that this is not supposed to be the way. This is not the way it's supposed to be. This is, you're right. That's not the way. And there is something more for you. And better will happen. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. These verses look forward to God's good plan, that God will dwell with us. Remember when I, I told you to note that, that God will dwell with us, he will be with his people, his dwelling will be there. You see, one way to read the Bible, there's lots of different lenses you can read through the Bible with, but one of them to look, look at the Bible with is it's how God dwells with his people. And so when we were studying the tabernacle at the beginning of the year, that's way God was dwelling with the people than the the temple in a similar way and in that time God was dwelling beside his people and they you would have to get close to the tabernacle close to the temple in the new testament God doesn't dwell beside people he dwells in us through the power of the holy spirit that temple veil was torn in two and God's that was God's way of saying I'm moving (laughs) I'm moving out of the temple and I'm moving into people's lives Christ in you the hope of glory and now God's presence dwells in us but in the new heaven and the new earth and God's good plan for the future God will dwell with us I mean think about what that means as you walk in your life as a believer like as a believer you may know realize you could say theologically well God dwells in me I have the Holy Spirit in me I've received God in me but do you always have that sense of his presence all the time, every moment, a sense that you could sit down and talk with Christ face to face. In the new heaven, there will be no more crying, no more pain, because God will be with us, and you will have that sense of his presence all the time. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning And the end, to all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. After creation, God looked at everything and said, it is good. Uh, After his work on the cross of salvation, he said, it is finished. After judgment, he'll say, it is done. After the new creation, he'll say, it is finished. They're all events about the new creation he is bringing about, of how he will be with his people. He's bringing in the joy of the new heaven and earth. As the alpha and the omega, he's promising victory. Promising that all who are thirsty, your deepest longings will be met. 
that Jesus can quench your greatest thirsts. He can meet your deepest needs. But it comes around this idea again that not everyone is going to allow him to do this. And scripture tells us in verse 8 that there will be some who don't overcome. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And the description here can, can be confusing because the question comes, wait, I, I see myself in here. Like, I'm telling you, I see myself in here. I mean, I've lied. I've put other things before God and turned things into idols, been an idolater. And the question comes, how in the world am I going to make it into heaven? Let me remind you what this means. This is a picture of the life that is lived apart from God. This is the story of those who trust in themselves and because of their fears that cowardly or because of their doubts, the unbelieving, they choose selfishness instead of the love of God and they'll be separated from the love of God because they'll be separated eternally from the God they've chosen to be separated from. And in the only place of separation in the new creation is the lake of fire. And the truth of the matter is when your identity comes, when you come to Jesus Christ, your identity, the moment you ask him to come into your life, he changes your identity. You say, well, wait, I've lied. I'm a liar. This is who I am. Or uh, you say, sexually immoral, like I've been immoral. You say, I've practiced witchcraft. Is that my identity? Is that who I am? God says, the moment you come to Christ, he sees you as a son or daughter. He sees you as in Christ and Christ in you. He doesn't see you as sexually immoral any longer. When you're made right with the blood of Christ, he sees you as his son, as his daughter, because of what Christ has done for you. So you look at this description in verse 8. This is a description of the life without Christ. That without Christ, I am left to stand before God to be identified only by what I've done in this world. But with Christ, I am left to be identified as what Christ did in this world. And I don't want to stand before God on my own. I don't want you to stand before God on your own without the goodness of what God can give and without the promise of God's good plan for your future in Christ. Would you pray with me now? Let's go to Christ. God, we cannot believe any of this without your spirit, without you speaking to our hearts, without you piercing through our defenses and whispering to us deep down that what you say is true. And Lord, I pray that you would do that now, that you would do uh, what I cannot do, what no amount of argument or thought or preaching can do, and that is to speak to us and tell us that your word is true. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that uh, the weight that is in this room right now, uh, the weight of your words, the weight of Jesus' teaching, Uh, that it would be gloriously lifted in new life. That we would have this sense of being brought to life because of the weight of your words. Because of your glory. And because what Christ has earned for us. 
God, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to belong to you in such a way that nothing could ever separate us again. No height, no depth, no life, no death. That nothing could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. May we be found, each and every one of us, in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and the church said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. We would love for you to get connected to what's going on at Rockbrook Church. Visit us online at rockbrook.org for service times, small group information, and other ways you can discover your purpose here on earth.